Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. The Tribe Called Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Talk House Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. On this week's episode, we've got a pair of songwriters who come from different scenes, but whose convergence sparked a longtime friendship and even some collaboration. David Wax and Will Oldham. Now, David Wax is half the core of the band that bears his name, David Wax Museum. The other half is his wife and longtime musical partner, Suze Slezak. The duo has been making records and touring the world for the past 15 years or so, largely independently and definitely marching to the beat of their own drummer. Their blend of Mexican-flavored folk and other traditional-sounding influences has been called Mexo-Americana, but that's really just a starting place. It's charming, engaging, and always searching. David Wax Museum's latest album is called You Must Change Your Life, and it was inspired by both a health scare that Wax had recently and by their choice of producer, Dan Malad, who's a member of Lucius, among other major accomplishments. Check out a little bit of the title track from You Must Change Your Life, right here. Now, perhaps from that song, you can hear how Wax might get along with today's other guest, Will Oldham. Oldham is, of course, known as the songwriting genius behind Palace Music and Bonnie Prince Billy, and he's been making timeless songs since the early 1990s. His latest album is a collaboration with Bill Callahan called Blind Date Party. Oldham is also an actor, which is touched on in this conversation. You may have seen him in one of Kelly Reichert's movies or in A Ghost Story, which, if you haven't seen it, please do. It's amazing. In this conversation, Wax and Oldham talk about how they were able to connect at a folk festival. They talk about how Oldham exists sort of outside the machinery of the music business and how that's helped and occasionally hurt, but mostly helped. They touch on the rare songs that Oldham has licensed for film and TV, and David asks Will to come to he and Suze's barn to play for a blindfolded audience. It'll make sense when you hear it. Enjoy. Hi, how you been? I'm doing well, how are you? Today is very promising. It's warming up, I'm very temperature sensitive. But then over the past few days, we've had a little resurgence of cold temperatures and my body is just not really into this cold stuff. But today it's getting warm again. And I went to a Qigong class today or Qigong. Mm. Qi oh, Qi yes, Suze has been loving her Qigong teacher. That's been like an essential practice for her of late. I can see a difference when she comes back from that class. Yeah, this guy is really wild, but he I think he lives, he might live in sometimes maybe in Suwanee maybe, and just comes to Louisville every couple of weeks to do sound bath stuff. And then mm. if there's room and time, he throws in a Qigong class. It's hilarious. And it was what I needed today. Yeah. Beautiful. The last time I saw my wife and child, they were smiling. How about you? Yeah. Yeah. Everybody's doing well on this end. I think maybe I just confirmed a show there in the fall. Oh, really? Oh, wonderful. Jefferson, is that a theater? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's where I'm playing, yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. Perfect. Well, if we're around, we'd love to see you and, of course, yeah. host you here in the barn. You know, my brother lives there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so. yeah I remember. And we're on good terms right now, so that's awesome. Great. Oh, so. I'm glad to hear that. Well, just some context for someone that's just like wandering into this conversation, and I just thought, talk about maybe when we first met, and like, mm -hmm. if it's not too embarrassing for you, I can talk about like what it meant to meet you and to get to begin a friendship with you because of my relationship to your music. Sure. To that point. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I've really talked 
too much about that with you. No, (laughs) no. And it's a, it's a kind of amazing to, you know, I was looking at all the liner notes on the record that you just sent. And I was just thinking like how amazing it is that I think other than you and Suze, it's just Alex Spiegelman. And I don't recognize any other names on that. And I was just thinking like, wow, our worlds, we were just fortunate to intersect when and where we did Mm -hmm. because otherwise our worlds don't intersect enough. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that's kind of the beauty of those Canadian folk festivals. We met at at the Calgary Folk Fest, yeah, maybe about 10 years ago. And I think the nature of being at a festival like that, where you're there for a couple of days, it's kind of so collaborative in nature, yeah. which feels really unique about those festivals. And it's just like a, an environment where I felt like I could approach you and be like, I'm a fan of your work. I'm so excited to get to see you here. Yeah, And then we like could keep running into you over the course of the time. And then when I, I remember like somehow in that environment, I felt like comfortable asking you if you'd sing with us during one of our sets. And like just that you would graciously accept to do that. And I feel really grateful for your your friendship in our life from that point on. Yeah, back at you. I'm not a fan of music festivals in general um, as a performer or an audience member, probably primarily because as an audience member, I don't appreciate them. It makes me appreciate them less as a performer. But Calgary, I have such specific and wonderful and important memories from the times that I've been there, which I can't really say about mm-hmm. other music festivals. I've found it with some of the other Canadian folk festivals that there is just a certain vibe to them. And maybe because the nature of these sets where they put a bunch of artists on the same stage and they like expect that everybody will happily cooperate and collaborate Mm -hmm. and that that's kind of the vibe. It also just like worked out beautifully because you live in Louisville, which is the halfway point between my hometown and Suze's hometown. Yeah, Yeah. So it's kind of like you're the halfway stop there and we've loved playing Louisville over the years and getting to hang out. I was telling Suze this before we got on. I can remember when I first heard your music because there was um, a mixtape that was being passed down in my high school. So I heard Fugazi and Tortoise, the girl from Ipanema, and New Partner was on that (laughs) mixtape. I can remember going to Salt of the Earth, the little record store in Columbia, Missouri, and trying to find it. And that experience, which maybe a lot of people when they were discovering your music in the 90s had where it's like, you know, there's no, there's no internet at all. So it's just like, I see a bunch of these different records under these different names, yeah. under the different palace names, and then got Viva Las Blues. And so it's like this record that I just like, I know so intimately. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I know your voice so intimately from that record. And then to kind of like get to have you collaborate with us and sing our songs when we've yeah. gone through Louisville oh, over yeah. the years. It's just, I mean, it's really on such a deep level, just so uh, gratifying and, and powerful to kind of like hear this voice I know so well that's been with me for so so long as a listener and then to kind of hear you hit, sing these songs together. I had a painter come over and he said, uh, you know, he's like, oh, I've seen you play one time. Or, I, you know, it wasn't your show though. It was the David Wax Museum show. And he's like, I actually have a really good recording of it here on my phone. Oh, wow. And he, play, he played when, when you were at the Clifton Center up yeah. the street and, and this thing. That was, that was really awesome. Little, oh. <laughs> little yeah. <laughs> That's great. Can you remember music like that that you heard when you were, you know, in junior high or that age of kind of like, and then people that you've gotten to know later in life? I had an extraordinary experience yesterday where I got to speak with, yeah, one of my biggest in this kind of environment, although she lives in the sticks in England. And so it took months to set up because eventually a portable digital recording device had to be sent to their house because they didn't have a, either a, you know, they didn't have really 
reliable internet signal to do something like this. So a woman named June Tabor, who's a singer, I don't know, and most people don't know her, but she's, Mm -hmm. I I first heard her when I was about 18 or 19, there was a Scottish friend. I asked him to send me some Scottish and Irish music because he knew that stuff. And he sent me five 90 minute tapes, organized tapes with seven or eight pages of notes on everything. And one of the voices that stood out was this woman, June Tabor, and she's remained a hugely important touchstone for me where like, if I finish a record, kind of the first thing I do is just listen to June Tabor for two or three weeks, wow. whether I'm in the car or at home. And it just kind of resets me and recenters me. I've written her fan letters before. She's never responded. She doesn't play out very much. She's 75. She doesn't think she's going to make another record. May never see her play live again, but I got to yeah speak to her for an hour yesterday, mm-hmm. and that was very thrilling. And then and then another hugely significant one was uh, I mean there's a bunch of them, but I had uh, Jonathan Richmond, yeah, yeah, because because he he's somebody I remember learning about in my mid teens, and I had a picture of him wearing a white leather jacket on my wall of my bedroom when I was a kid, and I loved his music very much. It was really important to me, and now I've yeah, I've traveled with him and hung out with him, and and uh, it's been terrific. That was the last time I've seen you in person. Was the Jonathan Richmond show right before the pandemic? It was yeah, the right. week yeah. basically before the you know everything shut down. It was kind of like Indiana Jones with the boulder rolling behind him. Shows <laughs> were being canceled, you know, three days ahead, but we still had the the next show. But then maybe that one was canceled. We were you know having these strategy planning meetings in the lobbies of hotels, which was. So surreal to be, you know, sitting there talking to Jonathan Richmond about whether or not we should continue the tour. I kept, you know, pinching myself. And it was a funny trip because playing with him, I I wanted to do it because we could just travel together and and I could watch him because I know he's even more particular than I am. And I'm, you know, kind of... Mm -hmm inconveniently particular about a lot of things. And maybe about a month later, two months later, he called and was like, I realized I never talked to you about your sets, your show. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and he gave this in detail, this detailed critique of the show. And I was like, well, you know, Jonathan, I was kind of like 75% invested in the show because the real reason I was there was just to watch you. <laughs> so I was holding back in order to just be present for the wow. observation of what you're doing. Because if I was there 100 or 110%, I would not be able to absorb what you were doing. And that was an opportunity I didn't want to miss. He was like, he said, well, that's what I was trying to do with you, which is not true because Jonathan doesn't try to observe anybody else. But it was nice of him to say, I was like, no, I mean, things are going to go your way or they're not going to happen, Jonathan. You understand that. Like we'll be at a show and he'll say like, if that ice machine is on during the show, I'm not performing. And I'm I'm like, well, if you're not performing, then we're not performing. So you could take the whole show down if you want. I'm not going to do that. Yeah. But still, every time I hear from him, it's like, wow, 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 wow. Just especially because he's also making insanely beautiful records right now, which is the kind of thing that, you know, when you when you when you're a fan of somebody when you're younger and 30 years later or 40 years later, they're killing it. You're just like, wow, that's I feel lucky that I got something right back then. It was a really nourishing show for me, I think, to like have it be the last one before everything shut down. <laughs> there was so much there that could sustain me for a long time. I'd never seen him, Jonathan, before. I think I went in just going like, oh, I'm here just to see my friend Will. And then, yeah, to kind of be blown away. He brings it every time, yeah. <laughs> yeah. To hear him critique your show, did that penetrate in a different way? Or did you feel like not that sensitive about it? 
I think there's not enough open critique of peers by peers or even, you know, honestly, by critics anymore. It, there's there's never, I, I feel like, anything that we could, up to, you know, sort of euphemistically call constructive criticism even anymore. And I think we all could benefit from a little more critique. And I know that Jonathan is an, is an intensely thoughtful human being. And so everything that he said was fully valid. And some of his critiques, you know, I, I knew in advance, because as I, as I said, like I, I wasn't fully going for it with those sets because then I would be absent for his sets. So I think he stepped gingerly at first, probably with the experience of having critiqued people before and have them maybe, you know, react negatively to that. But I'm ready for people to tell me how much I suck. Because <laughs> I just, because, you know, it's just like, well, I want to do better. I want to do better at making music that connects with people. And if people are put off by anything that's happening musically, then I'd appreciate knowing about it. Not that the critique is always going to be valid, right? I mean, do you ever get, mm -hmm. do you get any criticism? Like, no, I just, I can only, I mean, Sue's will be, crit, we can be yeah, critical of each other. Good. Yeah. I feel like that's helpful for us. I feel like we have figured out a constructive way to do that after shows. Oh, isn't that the best? Like after shows, right after a show, talking about the show. It's hard sometimes for us to stop. Yeah, you know, good. That's the trick. And I, and I think it's also like trying to create a space to also, yeah, celebrate what went right, what felt really good. Like what, like if there were a solo that she did that I really appreciated, I wanted to know that, like how yeah. I was moved by it. And then if I feel like, oh, like this thing, when we tried to talk about this thing, it didn't work, or this song's not working for this reason, or just, yeah, yeah, I love that kind of the deconstruction. As long as it doesn't, I feel like sometimes it gets, maybe because, yeah, we're in a romantic partnership and we're running this band, that sometimes it's like we step into some very sensitive territory too. I would imagine. So just kind of having to do, do that and hold the space for being able to be honest with each other. Yeah, you have these complex dynamics with each other or that you have multiple dynamics to navigate with each other. It's quite the experience to sit and listen to your live performances, but also your the records and you know reading the lyrics. Sometimes I'm white knuckling it a little bit uh, <laughs> with some of the emotions that are expressed. It's no audience's terrain to navigate what's happening on the other side of the curtain but at the same time because i you know just you know in my way i share these differing relate i have a musical relationship with y'all and i have a personal relationship with you all and so just hearing themes and lyrics come up i just think wow you know how do they how is this happening with with these people and i'll mm -hmm. you know i'll probably never know how you all feel about the lyrical content of the songs as you're performing them or as you're exploring them but it's intense yeah Hey, this is Josh Modell, host of the TalkHouse podcast. We love it when musicians come on the show and talk about process, and often they'll get into the nuts and bolts of being a working artist, which can sometimes be fun and sometimes feel more like a business. Well, this episode of TalkHouse is brought to you by DistroKid, which is an amazing service for musicians looking to get their songs out into the world in an incredibly smart and cost-effective way. For the past decade plus, DistroKid has made it easy to get your music on all the streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Instagram, and more. You keep 100% of your earnings minus a flat yearly fee, which is a better deal than you'll find anywhere else. More than a million artists use DistroKid, and the latest version of their app is better than ever. It includes features that make it easy to see your account details, including the money you've earned, as well as to seamlessly edit things like lyrics and metadata across platforms. There's even a feature called Instant Share, which allows you to easily share files with your bandmates, booking agent, playlist curators, and more. DistroLock allows you to protect your songs. 
DistroKid users get a YouTube official artist channel, too. The list goes on. The DistroKid app is available on iOS and Android. Go check it out today. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network. Speaking of lyrics on the new record, the title track has a, a verse inspired by a story that you told me. Oh, really? I remember you telling me the story because for me it's associated with this like be- like a beautiful morning where we had breakfast at the house. Yeah. And we were with Calliope, our daughter, when she was just a little thing. And you had set up a little recording station, like loop station. And so you had us like make music to like soundtrack our breakfast together. Yeah, yeah. So it was a beautiful morning. And then you told us a story about like you had a cut on your face and you'd said, I've talked about how you'd gotten drunk and fallen down at a yeah. bonfire. Yeah. And then you'd been snorkeling in an Epsom salt bath to yeah. heal the wound. Yeah. That just gave me such an image of like you in a bathtub. I think maybe because I've, you know, you're an actor as well, I can kind of like picture you on the big screen, like uh-huh. snorkeling in a bath, like with a yeah. gash across your head. The snorkel has never left the bathroom since then. It's still there. I guess, awaiting the next massive face laceration. There was a particular beer involved with that, and we now just call it Face Breaker. <laughs> I thought I'd uh, sent you the lyrics and been like, just so you know, there's this reference to you. Yeah, you may have, yeah. I'm only now beginning to experiment with actually more explicitly writing songs about people and not shying away from that idea. For a long time, I, I would. It seemed important to change things enough that where I knew I was sharing something with the audience, and so that it was about us. And now I feel like there are certain relationships that I understand can be sung about in a way where it's about the audience relationship to the lyric more than it is about the relationship that I'm expressing. I guess. But yeah, until then, it is like, well, yeah, you just put lots of things in there, put things in there with that have personal power, and that personal power will ideally uh, keep the song afloat without compromising a personal relationship. I walk that line with Suze, of course, because it's there's this song on the new record where it's Luann is the name of the song. And at yeah. first it was Suzanne, and I just felt too, it felt too weird to just sing that yeah. together. Oh, that's and cool. I, think the more yeah, I was I changed, wondering about Luann, yeah. <laughs> the more it became this kind of like mythological woman or this kind of like larger than life woman that yeah. then we could both sing about. Exactly. And of course there are elements of us in there. Yeah. And elements of our relationship. And yeah. there's an honesty there, but I had yeah. to kind of like take it out of us to, yeah, to let that song kind of live and be, become its own beast. I've never really worked like with a producer on a record. And I am always fascinated by what that relationship could be like. How long did it take? And was it a concentrated undertaking? Because I'm, I guess mm-hmm. I'm then asking, were there times in that process where because also sometimes in coming up with a song, as soon as it starts to work as a song, I forget that it has lyric content. And I'm just thinking like, okay, I want to bring the song to life and I'm not worried about it, the lyric content anymore to the extent that I think that it doesn't even have any. Like I could be singing in you know, Chinese or Estonian or something like that. And then I realize sometimes while recording or sometimes years later, oh my goodness, I can't believe I put out a song <laughs> with with those kinds of themes, you know, and were there and because there's two of you and there are, you know, 
themes that are intersect with your lives at the very least? Like, were there times when you might have found yourselves overwhelmed or surprised by, you know, even like we had a great day in the studio, not realizing that part of it was because the lyric fueled the great day, or we had a really difficult day in the studio. Like why, you know, why can't we get this take or why are we fighting or why am I not hungry or why do I want to leave the studio? And it's, you know, did the lyrics like change the atmosphere of, of the studio ever in unexpected ways? Mm, that's a great question. I mean, I guess the first part I can answer more easily, and then I can dig into that. We did, it was kind of a 10-day session, essentially. Oh, nice. Oh, great. Wow. And it was like, I think what was great about it, too, that worked so well, it was timed with like five days of everybody there, like the full band. And then we kind of like a slow attrition of kind of like taking one person out of the equation, kind of a more honed group to finish vocals or to kind of really just focus on the horn overdubs. And so we kind of like winnowed down the group over the, the course of the last five days. In addition to those 10 days, Susan and I had gone out to LA to do one song initially with Dan Malad, the producer, to kind of like test drive the relationship and working together. Yeah. And then we did one more session out in LA at the end to kind of just dig into overdubs, just the two of us, and to kind of find a little details. Yeah. So not in the scheme of things, 14 days, I guess, of like being in the studio, but pre-production days with the full band, like practicing the songs ahead of time which we hadn't really done before. Had you played those songs before? Was that like live or anything? Yeah, but they changed dramatically once we were in the studio. I feel like the fact that you haven't really worked with a traditional producer is such an interesting thing too. It's like a testament to a lot of things that I kind of have assumed that are like just the way you like do the music industry and like somehow these like things that I've imbibed by being in this for the last 16 years. And I feel like that's always been so interesting to me when we talk as I realize like how I'm working under these assumptions that you don't, ha you don't have to do it that way. Uh, <laughs> I just like, I, I forget sometimes cause I just yeah. like drink the Kool-Aid. I'm like, oh yeah, you definitely need a producer. Oh, festivals are important. Uh, you definitely need a manager. You need to tour a bunch. It needs to be these kind of venues and this like all the kind of traditional things that I'm always like amazed that you've kind of come into it and not, I feel like you don't get sucked into those trappings. None of those make any sense to me. And so that makes it, you know, almost sometimes too much of a challenge because literally every day I wake up and I'm like, okay, what the fuck is, what am I doing? And there's nobody to answer that, help answer that question and no templates either. Yeah. So it's kind of exhausting at times. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you share ownership of the record with him? It feels like a very collaborative relationship. I feel like yeah. collective ownership. And I don't, I mean, it's interesting because he, has worked on so many records uh -huh. and so many records since this record. And we have as well, but we also like had, because it got, this was rec recorded before the pandemic and the pandemic kind of was part of the delay for many years. It also like, we built up a lot of like collective energy around this record and expectations and kind of like just putting a lot of weight, which I know is not a healthy thing, but it just has kind of taken that on. Yeah. And I feel like I can't imagine that he has that kind of relationship to it. That's like, right. <laughs> he's kind of like, obsessed or fretted over all these different aspects of it. Thinking about the lyrical question, I think that there was something maybe about also making the record with a group of people together, mostly all the time, like with a big group of people and kind of having, what I loved about Dan Malad was he's such a great vocal coach. Oh, wow. So I feel like when I'm in the vocal booth and he's kind of coaching me through the songs and helping with me with phrasing, it takes the emphasis off the lyrics in a way that I found healthy. I'm just like really trying to kind of, yeah, listen to this kind of teacher in my ear helping me guide me through the verses and then it just sounds incredible in my headphones and the just the, the way that they could make my voice sound back to me it takes a little bit of the pressure off like oh are these songs about us or like is this too much about our emotional kind of 
life on display for everybody here. I'm really jealous about that aspect. I did a, a session a few weeks ago, and the idea of the session was, you know Shazad? By name, but not... I'd... So yeah, so Shazad and I have worked together, and he recently had had maybe an encounter or more than one encounter with uh, the drummer Jim Keltner. Mm-hmm. And he contacted me and said, oh, I've had these wonderful experiences with Jim Keltner, and I just feel like you'd appreciate it. And, you know, if you ever would want to set up a session, I said, okay, well, how, where would we be? And he said, Los Angeles is where he lives. And he's 80. So it's Los Angeles. And we were going to go to Los Angeles during our daughter's spring break. And so we set up a session. It was great. It was interesting. But again, like the Jonathan Richmond thing, it, my focus is on a lot of different things. It was a novel experience in many ways, really so much to observe. But I knew going in, I wasn't going to get upset about anything. I was there for a particular reason, like with the Jonathan Richmond tour. If On the Jonathan Richmond tour, if we had a terrible show, I wouldn't care because that wasn't why I was there. I was there to mm-hmm. see Jonathan. So I wasn't you know, worried about it. But then when I left, I was, I was thinking the one thing that I wish that I'd had was a vocal coach. I'm glad to hear that this fella is that's within his wheelhouse because that's what I would love. I know that I can sing and do sing in all different ways, but I don't always feel like I have control over what voice is going to come out of me. Wow. I'm trying to learn a little bit of Alexander technique. And part of that is learning to understand yeah, what's going to come out of you, whether it's a movement or in my case, I'm thinking about vocal delivery because I have these different voices and I'm like, well, why, why did I go in the studio? And where was that voice? The closest I ever got was when uh, we were recording the Greatest Palace music record and I was trying to do New Partner and uh, I couldn't figure it out. And so I overdubbed a, a vocal. I'd done all the other voices live. And then that one, David Berman came in and I, I was like, help me, you know, coach me. And he coached me like an acting coach. He was he, he gave me a character uh, from which, but but that's also interesting because in listening to the record and following along the lyric sheet, which was a wonderful experience. Like I haven't sat down with a record in a long time, partly because we don't necessarily have access to records with lyric sheets, new records with lyric sheets, with people singing, especially singing lyrics that are an integral part of the song. You know, a lot of people. They're musicians and they make great songs, but then they'll say, okay, now I have to come up with some lyrics. And it's just not an important part of the song, which is the opposite of how I approach a song. Mm-hmm. So sitting and, you know, sitting like I was 15 and like following along with every lyric on your record. And there were three or four times when I was kind of pleasantly stunned by the phrasing and just, just watching the words and seeing how you were able to, you know, dance with the syllables. Mm-hmm. Thanks for saying that. That's And I, I mean, all of that comes together also. Suze is kind of like in that role most of the time with me, kind of as a vocal coach and like helping me with, she's so attuned to phrasing mm-hmm. more than kind of where I'm like obsessing over the lyrics. Uh-huh. So it kind of gets to go through that filter and then to kind of have her in the room with someone who's like so specialized at that. Or that's one of his gifts as a producer. As cohabitating collaborators, do you all have set times? Do you, do you have a scheduled work day usually at all? No. no, we don't. Our yeah. life is so free form. Yeah. Um, and the nature of having kids, yeah. the nature of, I mean, I think Suze will also would say just being, having a bipolar brain, there's just like an element of, I think I've had to learn in our relationship to be open to how the day unfolds and to how she's feeling uh-huh. and kind of what she feels capable of and like how the day is, how the day's shape is going to kind of take place and to really be open to that and not get too hung up on, oh, this, I really, this was important to me that we do this thing today, or this had to happen. And I've just had to, yeah, just be open to 
her needs, the needs yeah. of the kids. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're getting ready for tour now, so there's like that. It's helpful for us to have outside pressure. That's kind of like, oh yeah, well we really need to. We're gonna go to do this radio thing, and we're gonna have to play this live. So to kind of have a way to focus our energy. That's yeah. why I've always loved like having recording dates on the calendar to help me finish songs. I love imposing structure on my structureless life. It's crucial. Yeah. I mean, thankfully, school helps a little bit with that for the kids. How'd you come across that producer fella? We've worked with a lot of great producers, but just a real music fan of ours, a musician, Mike's from Tall Tall Trees. Uh-huh. He plays with Kishibashi, and I was, we were just hanging out backstage and uh, after one of their shows, and he said, oh, do you know Dan Mulad? Like, I think he'd be a great producer huh. fit for you guys. And he like, has, really knows our records well, has seen our live show. Like, I thought, oh, like, he's really, he means that in a real thoughtful, he's, like, he does, he's not just throwing that out. Yeah, I saw that he's part of the Lucius mm-hmm. experience, which exactly. is a very compelling experience, I have to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, since the beginning. And yeah. An integral collaborator and producer in the early days of their, their first records and stuff. I was looking at their like Wikipedia description and it, it kind of blew my mind because in the course of describing, you know, their musical biography includes like what songs were placed in what show, what season of what shows, like what episodes of what seasons of what shows. And I, I it, it that really blew my mind, like thinking, <laughs> oh, people, that's really important to, to that specifically is important, which is cool because to me, that's the reason I would say no to most of those placements because I wouldn't want it in that episode of that season of that show. But it's interesting that that's like sort of a, a badge of honor for some musicians. I heard one of your songs in the Val Kilmer documentary, right? Yeah. And then that, which made a lot of sense to me. Yeah. And then the, at the end of True Detective, one of the episodes, or, oh, yeah. there was that song. How did the True Detective one come about? Or Tons of people had seen the first season of that show and found it to be, you know, novel and challenging and a lot of fun and sometimes upsetting and and sometimes a little hokey. But one of my best pals is a gentleman named David Ferguson who lives in uh, Nashville. He's a musician and producer in Nashville. And he's friends with T-Bone Burnett. He called me one day and said, oh, I was playing golf with T-Bone. And he said, they're working on a true detective and they really want you to do something for the next season. So I think I texted T-Bone. I said, this is Will Oldham. He said, hi, how are you? I'm fine. Uh, Ferg said that I should hit you up. <laughs> and and so, yeah, he was like, yeah, well, can you come down to Nashville next week? And it was a neat experience because just got to go to Ferg's studio then, which was the butcher shop, which has since been torn down with the infinite expansion of Nashville. And Ferg shared the studio with John Prine, co-owned the, the studio with Ferg. And John had a writing room like in the back of the studio with a little pool table. And that's where I went and set up and in Prine's room, which was, of course, daunting and exciting. And then the the bizarre T-Bone Burnett, you know, came into the room and, and, oh, I had said, like, what should I do to prepare? You know, should I, should I bring anything? He said, no, 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 I've got some ideas. We'll just work it out when you, when you get here. So I got there and he, like, showed me a Skip James tuning. And then he showed me, like, a lookbook for a show that he was maybe developing with the Coen brothers about maybe the jazz scene in New York in the late 1950s or something like that. And then he's like, okay, well, I'm going to just go in the other room and you just do your stuff. And I was like, what are you talking about? So he left the room. And fortunately I had brought some notebooks and I was, you know, in good enough songwriter shape to just sit there and come up with something that I could then play for him in 30 or 40 minutes. And that was the, and then we went into the studio the next day. I think at Ferg's house that night, 
It's like, what have I got myself into? And there was a documentary, you know, this weird contrived session called the New Basement Tapes. It was just Bob Dylan's crew trying to find ways to wring more money out of the, the, the gullible audience that he's developed over the years. But it was, it was a documentary about the studio session. And so I could watch T-Bone produce a session, essentially. That was very helpful, like in terms of creating expectations and helping me go into the studio, not just flying blind, I guess, the next day. One of the things I just marvel at with kind of following your career is this thing that I talked about earlier, where it's like, you've kind of, re- you like, don't accept this, the like, here's the way you're supposed to li- have a music career. And you kind of have done your own thing. And then I don't know, people still find you. You find kind of these incredible collaborations. <laughs> yes. Like, you know, I just like, it's, it's incredible. It's yeah. like, and I think, I mean, from the outside as a fan of your music, it's like, well, there is just something, yeah, like authentic about your way of being in the world that I think resonates for people. And that comes through in the art. There are wonderful and sustaining things that happen. Like, you know, that was sustaining in, in a variety of ways. And, you know, the, the Val Kilmer thing, or talking to... Uh, June Tabor on the phone yesterday. But if I were to involve myself, I guess, with certain aspects of the music business, that takes brain space, right? And so since I don't allot the brain space to some of those things, I stay in a zone that I think is also more useful to people than if I if I didn't. And as an introvert who loves other people and loves being with other people and working with other people, but is just, you know, socially inadequate and and live, you know, excessively in my own head. So to try to think, well, like, well, what kind of utility can I be to other people? And if I can stay connected in certain ways that are, you know, valuable and disconnected in other ways that aren't valuable, then I can function as kind of like this, uh, I don't know, essence or, uh, yeah. So like, the, yeah, like the Val Kilmer, they were like, well, we want to, you know, put this, I am a cinematographer at the end of this Val Kilmer movie. And Val Kilmer is somebody that I've been thinking about, again, since I was about 14, you know, since Top Secret was on repeat on my grandmother's cable TV. And I was able to say, well, that's cool, but, you know, could I re-record the song for this? And for a variety of reasons, partly because, you know, I live to work and I live to collaborate and and, and just the the challenge of, redoing that song for the specific context was really exciting. And also just knowing, you know, that we're watching Val Kilmer age and then wanting to present this similar sort of juxtaposition of youth in the composition of the song and age in the performance of the song. And then, you know, oftentimes we sit in our bedrooms or walk down the street and we think like, if only I could do this thing, if only I could sing with this person or write for this person and then it so rarely happens, but then sometimes it does happen. And you think like, well, if I'm not ready to do that, then I'm not, you know, I'm not worth anything. We have on our wall like this uh, painted on metal in monochromatic and neon orange, a, a portrait of Mark Twain that Val Kilmer sent as a thank you. And that's just like, yeah, that's that's what this was all about. Like mm-hmm. getting this uh, neon orange portrait of Mark Twain painted on galvanized steel to hang on the wall of our house and complete a kind of a circle. Did you have mentors or did you have models of people that were living that way that you saw that you were like, were like I'm going to choose to focus on these things and not get kind of, you know, these other things that don't make sense to me or they don't inspire me? It's crucial to my history and my makeup that I grew up 
when I did, where I did, because there were these things happening in Louisville, Kentucky, when I was specifically like when I was a teenager, musically, the the music scene was wonderful and you know creative and supportive. And I was watching older who were, are, who were leaving, going to college when I was just starting to, to go to shows, but who's, you know, within the scene, they were heroes, you know, but you could also see them and talk to them. And, and then similarly, there was the, the theater here, Actors Theater of Louisville, which was kind of in its prime at that time. And I, you know, I grew up with these, watching these actors on stage who were absolutely amazing and were my hero. You know, they were my heroes and they were so fulfilling to me. And I could, and I was a kid, but I could see people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 60, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s going to these plays, not going to the punk shows, but going to the plays and being significantly affected and moved and changed by what they were seeing and and that some of these actors were big figures in our community. I grew up fortunate to just say like these things can happen within arm's reach. Mm. And maybe also why you're able to kind of imagine a life in Louisville as an artist and staying there. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean and and seeing, you know, as much celebration as there is say of like certain aspects of of a New York scene in the 1970s in in rock and roll and art music, things like that. I'm not certain that I see even among heroes like the Ramones that you saw an evolution or a development that we can look up to and say like, I really want to, you know, I'm really looking to sort of do what the Ramones did with their 13th record. I'm not trying to do that. I can barely get through the Ramones 13th record. The well runs dry at a certain point if you don't have access to human beings kind of like, or community that's not just a music business community or a show business community. The music stops being interesting or the, or the movies or whatever, whatever people are trying to create. If you're trying to live, that should be reflected in your music and, you know, not separating yourself from anything, you know, from anything that the audience is going to need to sustain ourselves as audience, you know, as audiences. Yeah. I mean, that resonates for me in terms of just, not that I felt disconnected from that or had totally lost sight of it before the pandemic. But I think for us, there was this uh, sense when all the touring disappeared and we were kind of at home and we started trying to figure out how we were going to survive. And it started first with live streams, you know, like, and we weren't doing a live stream. We were doing like a private Zoom concert for fans of ours. And this one fan reached out to us and, and kind of like offered to help us in some way. And eventually it became this kind of, he was this catalyst to like start this fundraising campaign with our fans and raise this money to build this barn studio that I'm now in recording in this uh-huh. conversation in. Yeah. And to like, <laughs> be like, oh yeah, there is this, like all these people that have been supporting us. And we were kind of like, I don't know, I felt like we were kind of, not that we were flailing before the pandemic, but there was a sense we were just like following all the steps that everybody was telling us to do. And at the core of that was still just, yeah, the relationships with the people that were kind of, who were involved and invested in our music and supporting us and connecting with it. Yeah. It was so nebulous, but there was just like having this one guy that was like, all right, let's, everybody that really believes in this band, let's all come together and help them out. That's incredible. That's like a Frank Capra scene, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's happening right now. This is your life, but they aligned because you focused so much energy at different times in your day, at different times in your night, at different times in your life. And if that didn't happen, then life would be impossible and unbearable. And so it could, 
you know, it's completely unpredictable, but that kind of had to happen in order for life to be a sustainable <laughs> and music to be a sustainable thing, right? Yeah. You you see it sometimes happen where somebody gets a stroke of what looks like good fortune from the outside, but because the preparation wasn't there, it doesn't necessarily lead to something fruitful or, you know, it can even be tragic at times. But in your case, things are happening in your wake as you go from city to city it doesn't just end. You did something. You made an impression on people in so many, so many ways. And that is continuing to work in your quote unquote absence. And we've been doing these blindfolded shows and we've kind of been taking it to different places, but now we've been able to do them in our barn. Yeah. And it's been, I don't know if you'll have any time when you're coming through Charlottesville, if it's going to be part of a tour, but at some point, I really want you to be part of one of these blindfolded shows. That would be amazing. It's all acoustic. The performers move around during the show. Yeah. So people in the audience are like hearing it, you know, they just haven't really heard people play in that way to play totally acoustically and to move while they're blindfolded. Right. And the acoustics are, are really incredible in here. My friend Emmett Kelly and I did a tour in the Netherlands six or seven years ago, I think, where we played in small churches with, you know, maybe 100 capacity churches with the idea that we wouldn't have to use any sort of amplification or, or microphones, and that we could be anywhere in the room at any time. At any time, we could be anywhere in the room and the show would still be happening. And, you know, also with the idea that that, that fantasy would be, whether or not the audience had ever thought about it, that it would be something that fulfilled them. Like in theater, you know, if you're in the front row of a, of a black box theater and somebody is performing a scene three to four feet in front of you, there's kind of nothing like the effect that that, that has on on you emotionally. And it doesn't happen enough musically, especially by, you know, yourselves or, or myself who have, you can say achieved, you know, you can have, you, anyone can play to five people, right? Anyone mm -hmm. can play to 20 people. How do you still balance like, well, how small can you keep the audience so that you can explore this direct effect and still sustain a life in music? Because it's not financially sustainable to play to a hundred people on tour every night or 50 people or 20 people, even as it's emotionally and musically challenging and, and, and inspiring. That's what I think this experience of doing these shows, like, yeah, I really feel like I'm in it in as, as a performer in a different way, because I think I just feel like, oh yeah, I'm performing just to this person here. Yeah. They're, not even, they're not even looking at me, but I just feel like almost like I'm an invisible presence right next to them singing to them. Yeah. I think for me, I step into like persona performance role so much when I'm on stage in the outfits and like everybody's looking at me and I start, you know, like putting on a show. Right. You know, but yeah, it's just one thing that back to the human to human connection. Yeah. When you're just singing to someone that close. Oh, I can't wait for, I can't wait for you to be part of one of these. And it's great to get to reconnect here. I can't wait to see you here when you come back through. Yeah. Charlottesville or next time we're in Louisville. Yeah. We've loved playing there over the years. So we'll hopefully get back soon. Excellent. Awesome. Great to see you, Will. Good to see you, Dan. Thanks for listening to the TalkHouse podcast, and thanks to David Wax and Will Oldham for chatting. If you liked what you heard, please follow TalkHouse on your favorite podcasting platform and check out all the great written pieces we've got on TalkHouse.com. This episode was produced by Myron Kaplan, and the TalkHouse theme is composed and performed by The Range. See you next time.